You are listening to Coffee with Curtis and I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the show. Coffee with Curtis is a weekly podcast where you will be able to tune into my conversations over coffee with business leaders sharing their journey and experiences to give you insights to impact your own business. So grab a coffee and enjoy the show. Joining me this time is Gemma Clare. Gemma is a serial entrepreneur, non-executive director at a number of companies across a range of industries, long-time contributor to multiple news channels. She's a financial commentator. She has previously been the Times newspaper Money Mentor. She has co-hosted her own TV shows. She's even been the advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger on the show The Apprentice. We had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We covered many topics. I wish it had been longer. I hope you enjoy this episode. Gemma, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pleased that you've been able to join me. Such a pleasure. It's so lovely to see you. I think I'm allowed to say this. I think we know each other well enough for me to say the last time we spoke, it must have been 18, 19, maybe 20 years ago. Shot my age, yeah, 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 <laughs> long time, yeah. And I, all I recall is picking you up with a group of friends at your house on a Saturday night to go into town and you were late. You were always late. I was about to say, I was about to say are you going to protect me there or not? And there I'm you not go. I'm not going to protect I, you. I was late and it's very embarrassing and not much has changed. I always have a problem with time, but thank you. Yeah, so thank you for your patience then. And it's like, <laughs> thanks for asking me on this. Well, look, it's taken 20 years to get you here. <laughs> I've, I've watched in awe ever since because your career has been an absolute journey and a delight to watch and so exciting with all the amazing different things that you do. So... This is Coffee with Curtis, and it's meant to not be a sort of structured conversation. It's an, an unwieldy, pretend Joe Rogan podcast. That, uh, All right, roll up my sleeves. Yeah, we can dive into different ideas, what Gemma really thinks, and uh, just see if we can have some fun with it. But um, I want to go back to the start of your career, first of all, because mm-hmm. um, all I see is internship, graduate program, a three-year stint in a fund, and then boom, chairwoman, <laughs> chairwoman of an investment committee at Credo. How does that all happen? Just take me back. Have you always had not only the talent, but this incredible energy? Okay, energy, yes. Let's focus on the energy. Um, I also think it's interesting. The way I carved out my career is I always try to focus on how can I carve out a niche? So I've always struggled to kind of fit a certain role or put into a certain bucket. And then in terms of my career, the only active decision that I did make is because obviously I did my internship at Goldman Sachs and, but I made my, you know, and it was a fantastic time and I really, really appreciated it. But actually very, very early on, I made the decision that I wanted to work at places where I could have more of an impact that were potentially less structured, that I could progress quicker. Uh, you know, where really, if I work really, really, really hard um, there was less bureaucracy around. So I'll be able to, you know, kind of progress um, at that speed so you know I did I went from there to you know GAM which is a fantastic hedge fund and then I moved um as you said to uh, it was more like a, a you know wealth management um style operation and then you know I carried on moving and I really you know I loved investments and I loved understanding the way that the world worked and how important you know money was to you know give us the freedom to do what we needed to do my background was in physics you know and it was all about solving problems you know what's really going on and, and how can we uh, and how can we work things out so yeah I, I think I carved out that career just focusing what I really enjoyed but always just trying to yeah kind of carve out a bit of a niche and, and give myself the opportunity to be able to progress every step of the way. So. I love that that's the grown-up answer but I want to know before all of that and before yeah. you got in love with investments and financial well-being and all this stuff what did you really want to be when you grew up? 
oh, all right, fine. If we go all the way back, um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember at my first school interview, um, I was asked and I said, I wanted to, again, and let, let me set the scene first. Good storyteller. Let me set the scene. This is, this was a, you know, an interview for a school. I oh, got, I don't know how old I was at the time, you know, obviously very, very young. And, um, and everybody around there, they're all like, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. And uh, anyway, I got asked and it was, I wanted to be a fairy godmother because I wanted to help make people's wishes come true. I know, forget the last bit. But really, you know, it, it, it was actually, I guess you could equate it to, I wanted to solve problems. I wanted to help. I wanted, if there was a problem out there, I wanted to try and see if I could, see what I could do to solve it. So yes, if you want to go right the way back, it was fairy godmother. But if you want to carry on, it was then, um, you know, I found I had an amazing teacher at school, um, a physics teacher at school who was just inspiring. When he used to come into the lessons, he'd be like, you know, do you want to know why the sky is blue? Yes. Do you want to know why? And he just made it all relevant. Uh, and it's so interesting. So I did that. Then I did, you know, studied physics at university and I focused on quantum physics because who wouldn't? That's absolutely mind blowing and doesn't really make sense. And I combined it with philosophy and I, yeah, I just followed it. And my family thought I was crazy. What can you do with physics? But it's applied maths, you know, STEM, the STEM subjects are really important. And then I followed my family, went into finance. But anyway, so that was kind of how I, you know, how I got there. STEM is really important. I mean, you were probably ahead of the curve because that is like the buzzword today. And most, you know, big industrialized countries, they're all thinking STEM, STEM, STEM because of the shortage and the lack of perhaps grown up education on it. And also for women and girls to focus on STEM as core subjects. So just give us, give us some of your thoughts on that. Well, big topic. I mean, yeah. I think what's interesting within the concept of the pandemic and it's interesting within the, within, within the concept of um, how fast technology is developing. And I think because of that, because of the fact that we've all been you know, at home in lockdown and haven't been able to go out and, and be able to you know, shop the same way we've been able to shop, you know, it has, you were already seeing the rise of digital. You know, the fact that people wanted services cheaper, more convenient, you know, on their phone, out and about. So I think if we, if we look at where things have moved from and where they've moved to, you know, I think of the old TV show, Mad Men, you know, it used to be people in a room thinking of clever products and other people think, how can we sell them? And that was the focus, create a product and then sell it. And I think, especially also after the financial crisis, everything got turned on its head. And rather than what can we sell, it was what problems are out there. So, and people's needs have dramatically changed, which also does mean when you talk about the importance of STEM is that because people's needs are changing as drastically as they are, and also new technology is being developed. You can't have a boardroom full of per people of a certain age and of only one demographic, because you're not going to represent your consumer base. And you're also not going to be aware of the new technology that's being delivered. So I think that whole shift has meant that there needs to be more diversity of thought, of backgrounds, um, and, you know, and younger people are more on the cusp of this new technology that's being you know, developed to be able to deliver services. And I think it's, um, I, I said this quote recently, it's like adapt or die. I think big businesses out there, they, ha they have to adapt and they have to make sure that they're embracing new technology. And one of the toughest things for a big incumbent to do is to not quash innovation uh, and to be able to, you know, really embrace it. And I, I genuinely believe, I believe in the whole collaborative nature that the way where we're going to come out of this is more small companies. I mean, I started up a small company that was bought by a big company, you know, and I just think, but you know, merging companies together and having people go off and solve the problem, other people build up the customer base and everyone focus on what they're good at and come together helps people and helps really service the need um, to basically deliver really good services to help improve people's lives. You, you remind me of a quote from Reid Hoffman, um, founder of LinkedIn, big investor in many, many companies. Um, he says, people these days will do tours of duty. 
they won't have these long periods at specific companies ah. long careers in uh, yeah. you know any one firm they'll come in like you said they'll pull a team together a bit like a sort of unit and say right you're going to solve this problem you're going to do this you're going to do this because that's your area of expertise and we're going to solve it and we're perhaps going to move on and sell it or integrate it or merge it um, it just reminds me of that I think the interesting thing about that as well is some of the best ideas and we've seen this you know like you know slack it starts up as something a messaging company you know and obviously now it's become this whole platform sometimes what happens is a company starts up and, and thinks it's going to solve one problem and ends up doing something else and so the most successful companies learn from industries outside of it so everyone talks about who's going to disrupt financial services what are the big banks doing when actually What's fake, you know, what are the social media companies doing? What are the companies doing there that have much better access to people's data? So, and it's interesting because again, the second business that I that I founded, um, I was doing very similar to what I did in the first business in terms of you know building a, you know, helping people engage with their money. But whereas the first one I did it as a financial services business using technology to digitize that, the second one I did for a media company. So it's it's funny, and I use those lessons and and you know, and bringing those different industries together is really important. So I agree, getting a crack team together where you've got insights in different areas that have also got experience in different companies um, is really, really valuable. I think what I've seen in the workplace and the marketplace generally, you know, even within my company, we use lots of freelancers, is that people are moving away from even wanting that long term job. And the pandemic has sort of brought this out even more than perhaps it was. was it was the catalyst for it, ultimately. Um, and people are sort of saying, well, I don't need to be part of this big conglomerate anymore I don't need maybe the benefits and the pension maybe we'll talk about pensions and other sort of financial instruments later on but um, I really feel that the market is changing people want these side hustles or they go and do a freelance thing um, that poses many challenges though well I think the interesting thing is the idea of risk has completely changed so what you used to have and I'm just thinking about even you know, my parents' generation. The idea was the safe, the stable thing to do is stay in one company. You know, you work in one company, you end up with a lovely pension at the end, you know, and, and that is a safe option. And again, same thing, you know, my parents always used to get nervous when I, I'd talk about, you know, changing a job. But I think the what the pandemic showed was actually the big corporates, especially when you have absolutely no, you're not, no, not near the leadership position, you're not really under understanding, you know, exactly what's going on. Those are the jobs that were really lost. I mean, you look at, you know, hospitality decimated. So I think, Actually, this whole concept of if you really, really work hard for one employer, don't worry about it, you'll have a job for life. That doesn't happen. I think, I can't remember what the number is now, but on average now, people have far more jobs. And actually, it's like, I mean, you can equate it to investments. You know, everyone talks about don't put all your eggs in one basket with your money. And it's kind of the same thing, I think, with careers, that actually now people are realizing that whereas it used to be the biggest risk is if you start your own company, well, actually, the opportunity for you to be in control of the business, know what's going on, actually, you know, have clients that you're interacting with and you can control that relationship a bit more. Some, in some respects, that is a little bit more, that provides some, some more certainty than necessarily, you know, you know, go, you know, sticking your, um, you know, I think spending your whole life working in a, a big corporate. So I, th I do think that whole thing's kind of turned it on its head, which I think is good. Because I think the more people out there that are entrepreneurial, that are building their own businesses, I mean, that creates jobs, you know, it creates new jobs, it creates solutions. Um, and it, I, I just think that's only a positive for everybody. I agree. Like, I think it's generational, ultimately. Like, I'm already a bit older and going definitely a bit too grey. But, you know, the the full millennial generation and the Gen Z generation, they just want something different. And they are growing up in a completely different environment. And the idea of, 
you know, a 20 year stint at one company is, you know, like worse than a prison sentence. Yeah. Um, but, but your career, I've, uh, you know, again, looking at your, your resume, you've done so many interesting things along the way and they sort of fall into a few buckets for me um, because you, you've got all of this financial expertise that you did within a corporate environment. You then took that out to basically the consumer and how to deliver that to, you know, the, the man or woman on the street. Um, you've also got interests in energy now. I'm seeing that emerge. And you're talking about, you know, turning off your lights all the way through to electric cars and battery operated uh, systems at Vivo. Um, so, and, and then on top of all of that, what I've seen is just, and the bit that I'm really in awe with is this media personality that has sat on top of it all because you have grasped and it's really hard to do this and you did it early and before probably anyone else was talking about it and even before Mr Gary V who goes on about this was talking about it you turned what you do into a constant tv show whether that was on social media or actually on tv or contributing on news channels that's the bit I'm absolutely, as I say, in awe of. I want to talk about that before we talk about the other buckets, because I think people want to do it. They struggle with it. How have you done it? Okay, right. question, and it goes a lot into... No, there's, a lot there. no, there's a lot there. And actually, and actually, I think it's a really, really, really good question, because I think sometimes... Okay, the, the question I get asked quite often is, you know, oh Gemma, you know, how, you know, The Apprentice, how did that happen? Like, did you get a phone call one day? Like I was sitting there and all of a sudden, no, it was a, a huge amount of hard work, which hopefully is good news that, you know, didn't just land on my plate or whatever. But also, you know, there are, there are things I could pass on like lessons in terms of how to build it. And I think, I think it is, it's, I find it quite hard. I think in the beginning, one of the first lessons I learned is that um, I was always a fan of um, a proponent of, you know, like separating my, my personal life from my um, uh, professional life. And, and yet, you know, I got some really good advice early on that actually, you know, people want to listen to a person. They want you to be relatable. And I think that was really good advice. So it meant that, you know, when I was building up my social media rather than which starts off in the beginning was, oh, you know, here's a lot of bump about, you know, finance. It was more around, let me actually think about, and I did this whole TED talk on it. Let me think about you. You know, where are you in your life? What information would be useful to you? And how can I deliver it in a way that you're going to enjoy? And I honestly, and it's funny because I, and it was in one of my latest roles, I really ended up pushing the boundary out by um, convincing one of the biggest companies in the world to let me explain finance while running on a treadmill, you know, like dressing up like in a construction worker and whatever it was. So I've really, you know, finally, it's taken all these years, um, but I'm really passionate about, about, you know, about delivering something in a really relatable way, speaking a language people can understand, get rid of all the jargon and be a human. And I think people, people are more likely to listen and they want to listen. So, you know, they'll ask the advice from their neighbor, their family members, you know, people they work with. And I think, yeah, trying to get into that. So it's interesting that you say that. I think, I think it was born out of, I think my whole social media thing was born out of also frustration that, you know, I, I was, I was kind of generating these views like behind closed doors, especially when I was working in these financial services businesses, you know, and they were really good views. And yet we were fully reliant on, I don't know what a journalist, what, you know, wait, waiting for that call for them to phone up and ask us questions. And I just thought, why don't we go out there? Why don't we kind of create the news? Why don't we go out there? And, you know, we've got these fantastic views and actually then it also makes it easier for journalists to be able to pick up on it. You know, it just, it really helps everybody. Let's get the information out there. You can help the underlying consumer, you can help the public and you can help other people as well. So yeah, I mean, look, look, I, I definitely have, I still don't think I've got it quite right. And I still, every time, you know, always second guess, you know, about posting things or whatever. But I think quite often I'm just like, you know what, just 
suck it and see. No one's worked it out yet. And actually just you know, trying out different things. Uh, and funnily enough, some of the most cringeworthy things I've done are the things that people relate to the most. So, you know, it shows, I think that vulnerable side, um, which I think is really important because, you know, I think one of the bad things about social media is when it comes across as everything's perfect. I think it's important that people know, you know, other things um, that are going on as well. So, yeah. I love that answer. And I, I guess, first of all, do you still get nervous when you go on TV? Because you look so natural and you're so real, but do you get nervous? I, okay, so that was the telltale point when I realized I was weird. Okay, one of the points was it was, um, and it's funny, a friend called Anthony was the one that I think, you know, identified this quite early on when he said, you know, I think you should think about doing TV and whatever. And I was like, oh, and I remember I was at a conference and I was standing up in front of a, um, a, a crowd and it was the point in which you've done your presentation, which you can control. And now you're into like, they ask you questions and who knows what they're going to ask you. And I was really enjoying it. And I just thought, Gemma, this is weird. This is not normal. And of course, when I started off doing TV, very, very nervous. And actually, I think one of my problems now is I don't get nervous enough. So sometimes I'm like, oh, I can do this. And actually, I, I, I work much better when I prep. So I have, sometimes I rein my in, my, myself in and say, yes, Gemma, you might be relaxed, but, you know, let's still do the prep work. So so no, I, funny enough, I don't really get, I would be more nervous, I think, about talking to a room full of people that I know and that know me that obviously, than, than I would thousands of people that I can't see, you know, looking into a camera. I think maybe that's the trick. I guess also, ultimately, it's about mastering your subject and being a good practitioner of what you do. You know, you don't have to be a jack of all trades. You are an absolute expert in your field and therefore you master the topic. Yeah, and it's, again, it's interesting. I think it was, I can't remember which one it was. I remember being in the green room and um, I think I want to say Chris Akabusi. I think he's kind of moved into the, mo the motivational space. And it was interesting because um, he saw, he, he, he analyzed it very well because he saw me obviously in front of the camera and how I am in front of the camera and high energy, but he also saw me in the green room. And he said, one of the things that most people wouldn't know about me and wouldn't have, is that I was in the green room and I wasn't speaking. I was sitting there and I was writing notes. And actually the, re the reason I had the confidence to be able to, exactly as you said, the reason I had the confidence to go out there and talk around the subjects and give my interpretation of it is because of that work that no one would really see where I've got my head down and I am a geek. I mean, I love spreadsheets. I, I'm very much objective, factual, and if I've got something that's evidence-based and I have real confidence in the credibility of what I'm saying, yeah, then I can kind of, then I can, then, then my job is really how do I translate it for an audience, which is the fun part that I enjoy. I'm sensing a perfectionist streak. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned there something really interesting that I was going to bring up later, I'll bring it up now, which is this relatable element to you on screen and what you say. And I think, I think actually, if, if you look at all of your work over the years, you've got even stronger at this, at really getting to know the audience, um, even though you, know, you can't see them, there's millions of people watching. Um, I, I watched you with Kay Burley on Downing Street. And although you were being super professional, I swear in your mind, you were like the cat that got the cream. I'm on Downing Street. I have never been more excited. I totally geeked out and I did all these like, and everyone, and it's so funny because obviously when you're there, you're amongst photographers and cameramen that go there, that are there, that they go there every single day. And there I was, and literally the only one, because I turned up obviously so early and everybody else was really relaxed. And I was like, oh my God, I'm here. And I'm like recording behind the scenes for Instagram. I'm like recording all these different stories. And like, and, and then I was like handing my phone to somebody else. Would you mind taking a photo of me? And I was, yeah, I totally, totally geeked out. Um, so 
yeah, as you said, I have no idea how much that came through, but I, I was in my head. I just thought, you know, peak. I mean, here I am. I'm talking about the budget. You know, what's going to go on to the UK economy? What's going to go on to everybody's finances? Which is super competitive. Like, it's really competitive to actually talk about that in the media because everybody wants that kind of type of slot. And I'm doing it on Downing Street. I mean, it was yes. Yeah, I was very excited. <laughs> I, I have to get you to repeat your story because, again, this comes back to this relatableness that you have, not just publicly, but at, but it sounds like internally within your team um, or working with other companies. And I can't I don't know whether it was your first, second child. You said that you were in a meeting yeah. and sort of 10 days later you needed to exit. Please tell the story for our listeners. Thanks for lining that up nicely. So <laughs> actually, that's brilliant. And I, I think this was an article that I wrote for the, the, I think it was the Times or something, which was around, you know, can you be a leader and how leaders, leadership's changed. And actually it's, it's important now to be vulnerable. And actually if, you're, if your team knows what's going on, you can be much more effective. And that's ultimately the whole purpose of business. You're, to, yeah. you're very open about that. You show yeah. your kids, you talk about your relationships. You're, you're very open. Yeah, because hopefully, I think also when you go through tough times as well, I like to think, that's a silver lining. You know, if I go through something tough, you know what, when, if I can share it with other people and help them go through it, it gives it purpose as well. But this story, I don't know whoever's listening, if they can get inspired by this. So look, let, let me, let me just, cause I don't want to come across as somebody who, you know, uh, I think there's always a tension with women. You know, you have children, you work, you're too focused on your work, too focused on your kids. And I think it's horrendous that, that analogy. But if I give you the context, I, I started my own business and I just raised funding. So people had entrusted me with their capital to build this business, right? And it was a very small team. I you know, really just started out. I didn't have the, the, the ability to be able to take off a lot of maternity leave or anything like that. And I also love what I do and I love my team and what we're building is really exciting. So um, I had my daughter on the 30th of uh, December uh, and I, it was great because I had a bank holiday that weekend. And really, you know, I had to kind of get, get back to it. And it was, yeah, 10 days after giving birth, I was in, um, I, ha I had to go in for a meeting and it was a really important meeting for the business where we potentially could have won business or whatever. And anyway, I'm sitting there and the meeting was meant to be an hour long. And, you know, two hours in, it's going well, but I'm very aware, again, as a new mother, that there, I have, there are certain needs of me and my child. And I ended up, I had to stand up and I had to say, I'm really sorry, um, but I have to go now. My boobs are about to explode. And the reason why it was so funny is that the people around the room were very understanding, but they did say, Gemma, you could have finished the sentence that I have to go. It wasn't it. I was like, well, you know, at least you now know. And, and, and as I said, and I did, and the team were fantastic and they carried on the meeting and it was great. And I think that vulnerability and that race, as you said, you know, showing I was a real person, helped build that relationship a bit more. But, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting times. <laughs> but again, I love the story, not only because it's obviously fairly comical in some respects, but it's real. And I think these are the things that sort of don't get spoken about in this whole wave mm. of inclusion and diversity, which is, of course, 95% of the population are fully behind it. There's the minority that aren't, and there may always be a minority that aren't. Yeah. But just being real and accepting that's natural and it's life and let's just weave it into the way we do things I think so and I think one of the best things I mean the pandemic has been horrendous like let I me mean, it's been horrendous and I think a lot of people have been touched in some you know horrendous ways and loss of life and I mean my granddad I mean, not to whatever you know passed away one of the reasons was COVID you know a lot of things happened um but I think I think at the same time um one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic is is going on zoom and I think seeing people's lives and you know, my daughter, you know, I mean, my people have got to know my family, you know, my daughter's running in in the middle of I, I put it on social media, she ran in in the middle of an interview, which and I and I and I had to carry on the interview without a beat. And I think the producer said, 
you could hear some noise in the background and wonder what it was but really you know they, they'd run in and I've just introduced them you know I'm having a you know really important business meeting but here's my daughter wearing her um her her, her, her uh, what is it she's wearing a unicorn uniform you know and, and that's it and I think it makes us more relatable and I think again helps us understand that people are people and they have other needs and I don't think that's a bad thing the way that for businesses to cater to their employees and build it around you know you'll get less absenteeism if people are able to go to doctor's appointments pick up their kids you know, if people want to be, and again, that's how I ran my business, which is around being focused on delivery. You know, if you have a goal and I loved it, my team were fantastic. And it was never a case of trying to check up on people. It was, we have this deadline in, you know, two, three weeks time, we're all working towards it. And sometimes people would work, you know, on weekends or through the night, which I don't again recommend, but they would do something because also if they needed to take time out during the week to do things, of course they would do. And, and we were much more, we were much more productive. And I think, yeah, building that type of relationship where people are human, obviously, is, is really, I think, only good. Well, because otherwise we're just pretending and it's so much better when we're real. And look, like you say, we've, we've, we've probably all seen the inside of more people's bedrooms than ever before over the last <laughs> yeah. year. Without sounding dodgy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think ultimately you touch on a really interesting book because I see so many of these surveys and LinkedIn posts around, you know, the office is dead. I don't actually think it completely is. And I'll tell you why. I think people are saying that as the extreme reaction to actually what people want is what you just referred to, which is understanding and flexibility like adults. Yeah, absolutely. And the mixture, I think we've had, we had, was it presenteeism? Uh, the, the extreme was, you know, in certain countries and in certain companies, you know, people used to leave, um, jackets I mean I used to see that leave jackets on their chairs so that people would think they're still around and so we've had a complete extreme of you have to be in the office and you will only be valued if you're in the office so I agree now it's the other extreme but it's good let it swing you know the other extreme of right we're never going to go back to the office which is then forcing companies to at least offer the flexibility to say listen if you're not needed in the office why should you come in the office and I think there's nothing that beats face-to-face interaction whiteboarding especially you know in, in certain businesses put it on a whiteboard work out what's going on with the business and really brainstorm with people and I think people also we shouldn't underestimate the impact of loneliness I think in the, the pandemic as well so having colleagues going in and being able to interact is important but also financially you know to, the ability to live further out of London the ability to avoid commutes you know that will also help I think people's financial well-being and spend more time with their families and outside and I think it, it will help people's you know financial well-being mental well-being and company productivity as well so I'm a, I'm a big fan of somewhere in the middle. So nice segue there thank you for teaming me up talking about financial well-being um mental well-being is obviously something that is very much spoken about today um in the media books tv programs apps everybody's very okay with talking about it they're not okay still we're talking about financial well-being and your work at the moment is being really very centered on that to some extent around bringing the consciousness and education around money into people's lives in a way they understand it again coming back to your, your the relatable um, element of Gemma which seems to be the common theme here talk to us about why this is important to you <sighs> actually by the way before we go on I just want to also give due credit to uh, one of my friends Kirsty because I think she was she's one of the first people that gave me that nudge I think I was doing an interview for I think it was a BBC or something and I was wearing a suit and she was the first person to say don't wear a suit you look I won't use the language she used which was fantastic but she, you know you need to look like you know you're in people's living rooms so I just want to give her due credit there but in terms of why do I think well-being financial well-being is so important okay you know we talk a lot about physical well-being and mental well-being 
But I think what's become very, very clear is that if you have a problem with your finances, it impacts both. You know, it will impact your ability to go to sleep at night, it'll impact your health. And so, so not only is a financial well-being and the ability to have control and you know, financial security and all these things so important to you know, the ability to just survive and thrive, I think, in the world, but I also think, well, that's the survival part, but I also think it's obviously critical to the ability to thrive, the ability to also just do what you want to do, um, to be able to have control on your life. And it's, it's interesting because I spent, I guess it's like a bit like gilded, you know, I think I spent the beginning part of my career, you know, advising the wealthy, you know, in a very, very, you know, fortunate position, fine. And again, but again, showing how important it is and how, God, how much, you know, people can miss out if they don't manage their money correctly. Then I moved into a phase where it was around real people and how can I help you know, them save and invest their money. And I think where I've come to recently, which is you know, obviously unfortunate, is also seeing the dark side of what happens when you don't have that financial well-being, um, when you don't have control. And it's the reason why you know, I'm now an ambassador for the charity Surviving Economic Abuse. I've seen the real dark side of what happens when somebody else has any impact on your finances, especially when you know, children are involved. And it can, you know, and it it really, you know, you've seen so many cases of abuse, you know, they don't pay for their own children um, because they, you know, they're they're looking to abuse their their, their former partner. And I think, and I think it's interesting. And again, when I was posting about this, you know, there were so many people that came forward and said, and said that it was their, um, that they've been, you know, it's been years that they've been trying to chase, you know, their their former partner. And I think that's, that's why I kind of tried to help the Surviving Economic Abuse, the charity campaign to change the law. Um, to make sure that actually, you know, abuse when a relationship's finished is actually now, um, you know, it's rec- it's recognised by the law and it's now illegal. So, so in answer to your question, sorry, but I think mental health, uh, you know, financial well-being is so important because it's absolutely critical. But I think it's critical to us being able to, you know, survive health-wise, but also just pick our own career, start a business if we want to, look after our children if we want to, you know, everything. And it's interesting when I started the business with. Um, you know, the second business I did, I really even more closely linked it to life events. If you have a life event, there is an underlying financial need to it, whether it's divorce, getting married, having kids. Um, it really does underpin everything. So, you know, look, please God, like hopefully, you know, for everybody, they can get into a position where, you know, you're, you know, they've got the financial security and money isn't that. But for the majority of the population, you know, it is about building that resilience. And the pandemic showed that you used to be told that it's important to build three months worth of expenses as a buffer. We've been in the pandemic, we've been in this lockdown for a year. And I just think it just really exemplifies how important it is um, to be able to have the ability to save money and, and control your finances as well. Sorry, I thought I talked about a lot of different things there, but I'm just so passionate about there are so many different areas, I think, that money affects people. Look, first of all, kudos to you and all the people who managed to get that change in the law around economic abuse. I mean, that is huge. And, you know, well done to you on that. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit in two minds on this. Is it a little bit of a case of too little, too late by the time people are sort of 30, 40, they're, they're not financially literate we didn't learn it at school. We didn't have that education and we still don't have that education. There is a significant education problem around money and management of money and business um, that doesn't seem to be being rectified in any way, shape or form that I've seen. Um, I was reading recently Robert Kiyosaki's uh, fake, uh, fake money, fake teachers, fake assets. And, you know, I'm no financial guru, but you are. But um, a lot of what he says really resonates with me. And 
you know, just looking at, for example, what schools reinforce around, you know, money and sort of invisible poverty, as he calls it, you know, punishing students for mistakes, memorizing answers rather than learning how to make mistakes or find solutions, um, not being able to say, I don't know, like you said at the beginning, you know, lacking real financial education, understanding cash flow. You know, he mm. made a game called the cash flow game, which is all about kids, adults learning that cash flow is blood within your financial life. Yeah. How, how are we going to change that? What, what, I, I can see you becoming the financial education czar for some government at some point. <laughs> well, actually, the thing that I did get involved in is that there was um, the UK government put together um, some groups to help shape the 10-year strategy to improve the UK's financial well-being. And I did. I did. I volunteered my time for that for, I think it lasted about nine or ten months. Exactly that, to say, listen, how do we reach people? And funny enough, one of the levers I use, because we're talking here about the lost generation, really. You can reach people in schools, fine. But how do you reach people that aren't, you know, how do you reach them? And one of the levers we were talking about is through an employer. Is actually, you know, you usually do turn to your employer who's paying your salary and do discuss money with them. So I think I think the thing that I, that I find interesting is... Um, you know, really, there is a lot of fear of the unknown. Money's still a taboo, and I think you know, getting getting people to start to talk about it and just try and you know, you know, knowledge is power. Try to understand about it and and learn themselves is a really really important point. But I think you know, whenever I think of any advice or anything like that, I always look at you know, it's much you go with the grain basically. And actually, what is it out there? How can we help people in a way and reach them in a way that they you know will most naturally you know like to be reached? And I just think, I think it's a you know. It does have to be for future generations. There is more of a focus on financial literacy, especially in schools. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm in awe of the education that my children are getting around um, practical skills, you know, life skills. And in my day, it wasn't. My day, it was, you know, it was Latin, which was great. Um, you know, I, and I do love Latin, but it really, really useful. <laughs> very useful. But I agree with you. It's about, you know, practical um, subjects. I'll tell you what's also really good that I found out recently. It was from, from Dell, actually. You know, the, com the company Dell, they, they actually now work with universities because they need to build a workforce um, that has certain skills, they will, they will work with the university and say, listen, in three years time, we need experts in X, Y, and Z. So I think there is this move around where you can reach them with education, around schools and universities to equip people with the financial literacy, practical skills, tech skills that they need. But look, if we actually talk about, you know, here we're talking about the lost generation in the middle, you know, you're out, we're out of education, what are we gonna do? Um, and, and that's what's unfortunate is it's really the responsibilities on the person. You know, it used to be where you can rely on your state pension, but really now it's it's just about it's just about kind of dipping your toe in the water. And speaking of somebody that created a business to try and solve this, the, the good things that I'm reading negative here, the good thing about this is that it's also never been easier. And I hopefully it'll get easier and easier. And I know we've still got a way to go. But there is the opportunity to try things out. So one of the things, that, again, when I was building my business, you know, you used to have to have thousands of pounds to start investing, for example. That's a huge barrier. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. That's not necessarily money that you want to lose, you know, have the ability to completely to lose because you don't know what you're doing. And what I fought to do is build technology so that people could start to do it with, I mean, 50 pounds is still a lot of money then. It's obviously come down since then. So there is this ability that really you can test things out. You can go online, you can find resources, you can try and, you know, and I try and put out content, you know, about the, about the stock market, about investing, about understanding how much money's coming in, about how much money's going out, budgeting. You know, there's, there's a whole wealth of information out there and then nothing really beats doing it. So setting budgets, starting to invest. Um, and I think that's the best way because otherwise the problem is people tend to go from extremes. They go from doing nothing to then suddenly Bitcoin's all exciting. 
Um, and, and, and really, that's fine. But, you know, you really need to kind of build up to that and understand the different markets. And I, I always believe don't invest in something that you don't understand. So, you know, oh, really? looks, wow. Well, I think if I think if if something looks too good to be true, I mean, that's the problem with the, the, the scandals that we've seen. If it, oh, it sounds like it's a free lunch. May, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, in an ideal world, try and understand. I'm, look, you're never going to stand in the place of a financial advisor. And obviously that's the best thing to do is, you know, is have expert advice. But I think, you know, understanding investments and the way that they work can only do you well, because it means also when, when inevitably you see a fall in the value of your finances, um, you also, you're more, more resilient to know how to handle it. But I think, I think what's happening also, you touched on this, we're going to, you know, the Bitcoin end, but if we come back to the more of the center, we're seeing these digital banks emerge and, mm-hmm. and fintech change dramatically as an industry. And if you place that against, I guess, what if we call the legacy systems, the legacy banks, but also the legacy politics, we're, we're dealing with people that don't quite understand where the market is moving and, and the next generation's expectations. You see this in the Senate, for example, in the US, when they, I think it was last year or two years ago, they're interviewing all the big tech bosses and the questions that these yeah. typically 70 year old white men are asking. Yes. Bonkers, you know, can you test when I'm walking from room to room? I mean, yeah. so yeah. We're, we're dealing with legislators who don't understand how to legislate educationally for the next generation around money. Yeah. But we're seeing this informal education come through via the disruption within finance. So if you're NatWest or HSBC or one of the, you know, traditional banks versus I'm a big fan of Revolut, for example, it's there. It's an app. It's easy. I can see the expenses. They give me notifications. I understand what's happening. And that's just one example. I met recently with the CEO of um, Afterpay, Nick Molnar. Um, incredible business and changing the way that, that the next generation want to buy things. Not It's buy now, pay later, but based on the, the new version of that, which isn't credit. It's more customer centric. You've got to pay it off, otherwise you don't get to do it again. And and and, and really putting the onus on the, the business rather than the consumer around credit. So I think the disruption is going to happen anyway. Do you agree? Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that there's now recognition. So um, a few years ago, and I'm talking about when I was studying my business, and uh, you know, I used to speak to a lot of different corporates that you know we were interested in doing different deals or whatever. And um, and it's interesting because early on, I there was a, quite a lot of companies that were giving the message of yeah yeah that's very very nice but we'll build it ourselves and there's quite a lot of like this this you know and, and to be honest my reaction was always good luck <laughs> right and um and it and it's and it's interesting because um you know and again like that I faced a few different things I remember being I remember going to raise capital and being told well women are a niche I, mean, I can't believe 50 percent of the population or more than that are known as a niche and and I had to basically answer to them and say you know, yes, of course, we're going to cater for the whole audience. And wouldn't it be wonderful if finance was easy and accessible for everyone to understand? And if it's easy for men to understand and women to understand, you know, it'll be easy for everyone to understand. And, and I had to say, I'm not making my website pink. You know, it's all those traditional cliches. And I think you're absolutely right that, um, and the good news is, is that, especially as I said, during the pandemic, these companies haven't been able to reach their customers in the traditional route. So they know that they need to do something about it. But a lot of companies are born, these new, are, which is are born from frustration, which is good. People end up, they have a problem, they can't solve it the traditional way. Fine, if you're not gonna solve it, big company, I'm gonna do it myself. And where I get really excited is, 
It's about these solutions being created, about, I would say we've actually got a really good regulatory environment that does like to embrace new technology to solve those problems. And actually everybody now being motivated to, okay, well, why don't we all work together? And if we all work together, we can reach more people with a solution that works um, and then help solve the problem when everybody can make money and create jobs and it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, and I think that's where we're getting to. Um, and, and like I said, it's like that really good balancing act between you know, people being frustrated, building a business themselves, being entrepreneurial, but then also working with, with, with the bigger corporates to work out how that technology can be utilized for them to reach the millions of people that they do look after. Uh, and, and that kind of gets it, gets it into play, I think, really well. I, th I, th I think the challenger banks that are coming through and the other fintech products that, that will do that, they're tapping into the, what I call the Apple or Tesla effect which is Tesla has a, an amazing electric car, but the bit that they're doing, which is really the next level is the design. And Apple do this as well. And, and I saw recently, I think it was a bit, perhaps it was Elon Musk telling the story that you know, a kid went into his father's garage and they were charging the car and you know, this beautiful charger that connects to the car. It's a bloody charger. It does the same thing <laughs> in every car, but it's designed and built in a way that looks beautiful. And the challenger banks and the digital apps that are, are moving us in this direction are tapping into that. I 100% agree. It's, it's, you know, the user experience and that, that's what's really, really changed it. And, and it's funny, and I won't, I guess I won't name names, but there's one, you know, very, very big financial institution. And funny enough, they're very open about it. And they say that their view is, is that they are the engine in the car. And realistically, unless you're a complete expert, whatever, when you go and buy a car, you know, it's, oh, for me, it's the color, no, I'm joking. It's, you know, it's the look, the feel, you know, there are lots of other elements in terms of why you would buy that car, how smooth it is to run, you know, can it get you from A to B? It's, it's the experience that you have driving that car that will sell it. It won't be, you know, a bolt or a nut. And really they were saying that they, what they do is incredibly important. It's the nut and bolt that they do. And what the, the, the um, consumer friendly, new innovative companies are really doing really well and you talk about this relatability bit is they're relating to the consumer and it's and we've got the information there it's data driven you know gather the data and actually assess what is it customers want how do they want it delivered and how can you get from a to b and it's, it's the same thing you know i talk about thinking of a product and trying to sell it but it's the same thing some people are thinking up i've got a great service i'm going to launch do a website but how are you driving people to actually get to the right part of this, to understand what you're providing. How are you helping them try out your service? You know, how much of it do you allow them to try out? So for my second business, you know, it was, with a, it was within an organization that very traditionally puts everything behind a paywall. And one of the things that I fought for was do it outside the paywall. You do it outside a paywall and you, you don't monetize consumers because they're the ones that are more cash strapped and really need the help. Give it to them for free. You will get a much wider audience and, what, and who the people that will, can afford to pay are the corporates are looking to reach these people. So it's a win-win. And it was really kind of turning that business model on its head that I think, you know, obviously worked really well in that instance. But I agree with you. It's, it's everybody focusing on, and I, I talk about it, about commoditizing. There's no point trying to be innovative, I believe, uh, around certain areas that everybody's doing, you know, and everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it you know, ideally well. It's more like a commodity. The bit that you want to focus on, where the new companies are coming to market, or when there's a problem where a solution just isn't being delivered well. So yeah, a Tesla is not being, you know, it's not about the, the bolt, it's about how beautiful it is, how well designed it is and what the experience is of somebody that's looking at it and driving it. And new tech businesses are really, really good at doing that. Look, it's that theme like you've mentioned throughout this, that 
customer centricity is driving everything in terms of the the new wave of businesses that will win yeah absolutely um you've mentioned women in business you are a woman in business um i want to get your views on mainly because i saw this on linkedin over the last couple of days lots of women posting saying i'm not a womanpreneur i'm an entrepreneur and I've been like liking and I completely agree with you and labeling only creates more division. Um, am I right or wrong? Right. Let me let me say two sides of the story. I'm <laughs> going to start by playing devil's advocate. Let me just start. By, and then I'm, uh, it is important to, to try to recognize women. And, you know, I talked about, you know, going from one extreme to the other. I believe there needs to be a threat there, just like, you know, uh, quotas on boards, all this type of stuff. It's the threat. It's the, you have to do something to get more, to drive the equality. It's not just going to happen naturally. So I absolutely think it's been fantastic to have female focused awards uh, to do, you know, to do things to showcase good women in business. Because again, the argument a few years ago was, oh, well, the the talent isn't there. The talent is there. It's not getting through the door because you're not looking. So I do absolutely agree that it's important to have had that impetus. However, let me do the other side of the, the coin is that if somebody is genuinely good at their job saying to them oh you're good for a woman it's so I find it's so condescending and, and this has really come to the fore in sports you know I think Andy Murray's been fantastic when a number of times he's been said you know they said something like oh he, he's he's the first whatever and he's like well no, no actually you know my, my female counterparts has done that have done that and the same thing, I think, with uh, Serena Williams has also been really good at saying, you know, she's, you know, the best sports, you know, tennis player out there, not female. So I, I, I think cre- you should have credit should go where it's due. I think absolutely use use whatever we can to try and create greater, greater equality and recognize women. But I also think that you need to give credit where credit's due. And if someone's doing a good job, don't, you know, they are doing a good job, whatever their gender is. You know, it would be ridiculous to say to somebody, oh, you've done a good job as a, you know, a 42 year old. Well, no, no, you've done a good job. Like you wouldn't mention their age. You wouldn't say, oh, you've done a good job from growing up in Northwest London. You would say you're doing, you know, it's done a good job. So yes, that's my little rant. I think people are, you know, there's a place for it, but ultimately, ultimately, yeah, people are good, they're good. I, uh, I'll, I'll ask you a question. You don't necessarily have to answer it, but um, I noticed uh, this morning on Instagram that uh, President Biden had had the um, female soccer team in the White House to talk about gender um, pay equality and things like that. Um, what, in, in, a, in, a, in an apples for apples scenario, absolutely. There should be zero difference between anyone getting paid. But a question for you around, say, soccer, which is a, it's commoditized in that a game of soccer might, or football, I don't know why I'm saying soccer, because I read it, but um, a game of football that is the men's England and Italy team will draw millions more pounds of TV revenue and advertising compared to a women's game. Not because the women's game is bad, but just because the audience and the market for it is less. So the money that is being driven into that side of the sport is different. So should you know, Rapino be paid the same as, um, you know, a top, top football player on the men's side if the financials are different? This is where I think it starts to get yeah. unbalanced. And I think that's a really, really good question. And I'm clearly not going to come out with a yes or no answer for this. Um, <laughs> but it's think, it's market economic. No, it's yeah, but that, and, and that's actually funny enough. That's that was kind of the answer I was gonna where I was gonna get to around. There are two sides to a market: there's supply and demand. 
So, and what you need to do is, you, I think you need, to, you need to impact both of them in order to drive it to equality. Because here's the thing, there is absolutely, let's take a really big step back. There's no reason why eventually those things cannot be equitable. And what we need to do is create the environment to get it there because it's a win-win for everybody. Why shouldn't you have female, female football be as lucrative for everyone? You know, again, again, it's like, um, it's like this thing, it's not like there's a, a specific pie out there. And if you give somebody more, you're gonna take away, you're not gonna take away. Everybody's gonna be able to make, you know, you, if you create a, a sport there that's attracting more eyeballs and you, you know, it's gonna be a win for everybody. So in answer to the question, I think that, I do think that there still needs to be a focus on you know, paying people a more equitable level and remunerating people for doing a very, the same job, the same amount of money. But I think I agree with you that the mechanism should potentially be less blunt than that. And actually the mechanism should be, what can we do to support the sport? And what can we do to make sure that it is, it gets as much airtime? Because also, of course, a certain small sport is not going to be able to be as revenue generating if it's not it's not as easily accessible it's not shown on tv as much it's not generating as many fans because of that so i think i think there are lots of different factors involved and all of those things need to be driven to get us where we should get which is an equitable situation completely agree those are the structural challenges making sure that tv channels and the advertisers start to invest in that that's that's the point love it great answer as i expected <laughs> Um, we are rapidly running out of time. So I'm going to get in a few last questions, if I may. Um, your current role as a non-exec at Vivo Power is an interesting one. You're moving into the energy space. Um, tell us why this interested you, because you could have the pick of roles. Let's be honest. I'm not, you know, blowing smoke here. Um, you've chosen energy as, a, as another vertical to look into and, and you know, no surprises, but um, what's driving you behind that decision? Again, it's going to impact everybody's lives. There is a focus towards net zero. How do we create a more sustainable planet? How do we create more uh, planet friend friendly profits? And how do we, and this organization, they just did a deal with their Tottenham Hotspur uh, to help them. I saw drive the video. Great yeah, video. Amazing. So to help them drive towards net zero. So they're a battery technology partner. And again, it's a play on how can we use new technology and new capabilities to be able to have a good impact on people's lives and, you know, a good impact on the planet and a good impact on people's lives. And I think it's a fascinating business. They're doing fantastic things. And it's a, definitely a sector where we should be focusing more on. And I think all businesses are going to have, have that on the top of their agenda. It's no longer, it used to be a luxury. Oh, we'll have like a, you know, we'll be, we'll be ethical, you know, once we've, once we've made our profits and we'll think about it afterwards. You can't, because again, it comes back to consumers. Everybody, and again, through the pandemic, are more focused on their health and the health of the planet, and they're going to be spending their money accordingly. So it, I think it's a, a really, really important driving force. Look, it comes back to, again, we're repeating ourselves a bit, but customer centricity. We're seeing the buyers of the future want to purchase um, from companies that align with their values, whether we like that or not, or whether we think that there's reasons that we shouldn't maybe be doing that. But um uh, you know, I, th I think of a conversation I have with a, with a woman who's got an incredible business in LA, um, which is a sustainable swimwear brand. And she's a tiny business, but she's really growing rapidly. But her whole ethos and marketing is around her sustainability and renewable materials that she's using within the product. And that's what's driving people to buy it. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, we're coming really to the end. So I'm going to ask you like some quick fire Go for questions. it. Go for it. Go for it. I can be sustained. <laughs> Understood. Yes, boss. <laughs> um, okay. Tea or coffee? Oh, uh, the green tea. Oh, uh, pensions or real estate investment? 
Oh my God. Both. No, not cheese. <laughs> Everyone always asks me that. Be careful. Both. Yeah. Whiskey or wine? Wine. Red wine. Uh, favorite social media? App. I don't know. At the moment, I'm getting, I, I, I like the interactivity of Instagram. I am intrigued by Clubhouse. Let's see. Mm, yeah, I'm really enjoying Clubhouse. I'm mm. interested to see if it's going to be a, uh, an app that wins or whether it becomes a feature and Instagram just do the same thing. Um, best job moment in your career so far? Telling Arnold Schwarzenegger who to hire or fire. I mean, done. <laughs> <laughs> having Boy George, having Boy George walk into a boardroom and go, hi, Gemma, and for me to go, ha how do you even know who I am? I mean, his, his song, Come a Chameleon, was number one, I think, the year I was born. That's giving you my age. So it was just, it was absolutely oh, mind-blowing. Yeah. I love that answer so much. iPhone or Samsung? iPhone. Um, big fan of low risk or high risks? I believe in a mix of the two and a good transition. At the moment, I'm young enough to be able to take higher risk, but naturally with my career, I'm low risk. I don't know, a mixture of everything, be diversified. Uh, is the customer always right? Yes, yeah. Ooh, okay, uh, low tax or high tax economies? Oh my God. Um, well, this is showing my... Uh, oh, I, mm, I don't know. Too political. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that one because I basically believe that we need to look after each other. I genuinely believe we need to look after each other. So you need to have the funding. We need to protect our health service. At the same time, we need to incentivize businesses to be able to go out there and create jobs and entrepreneurs to be able to, you know, create jobs for other people and, and create money to look after their families as well. So, yeah. Yep. Perennial question. Um, yep. Your dream career, next move, anything on the planet you could do, what would it be? No, I'm, you know what? I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. Sorry, I love it. I, I'm advising different businesses in different sectors that are really ambitious and have fantastic goals. And I'm really enjoying advising and passing on what I've learned to help other people and also campaigning as well, you know, uh, as and when I can for different charities as well to help other people. So, yeah, I think this, I'm really liking the mixture and spending time with my family. It's great. Fantastic. Look, Gemma, thank you so much. You've been so gracious with your time. You've been gracious with even coming on to do the podcast with me. I am so, so thankful. It's been fun. It's been educational. And I just look forward to continuing to watch in awe as you do all these amazing things. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was wonderful.